if you can't quickly establish that alignment and engagement, then you'll very quickly be um, a casualty of the M&A process. We've done some cases where we've been working with a partner for 20 years. It's quite easy, I think, to get a bit complacent in those situations and think, uh, oh yeah, of course they're going to use us. Of course the new entity will understand the value. I've certainly seen that complacency at times where um, I've had to kind of remind the guys that uh, we really need to move at pace now and uh, get established in that new relationship. The world is ever-changing. So what makes a good channel partner these days? What assumptions do we have about what will make a partnership successful and what might we be missing? Welcome to this episode of Revenue Riser. I'm your host, Anna Britnell-Guest. I'm delighted that Steve Warburton and Matt Hathorn both agreed to come back on and share more insights on how they see the channel evolving today. They both bring a wealth of practical experience and I've worked with both of them over a number of years. Steve Warburton is Managing Director of Zen Internet's Partner in Consumer Business and one of the most highly regarded channel leaders in the industry with a really pragmatic and empathetic view of what what makes partnerships really gel and work together. Matt Hatshorn is CEO of Recur, which has spent over a decade helping vendors and partners to really activate and deliver on their mutual sales growth plans. Matt has really practical experience and clear views on what makes the difference between enablement and true activation that is going to drive results. So join me now as we learn how to truly optimize those key partnerships for success. Steve, we talk a lot about what makes a good partnership. But what are you seeing as changing in terms of how you might answer that question these days? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Anna. I think um, yeah, we've onboarded a number of new partners over the last uh, over the last year, and I think what I often say to, to the team and to our partners actually is um, it's all about being very clear about the purpose of that partnership. You know, what we're trying to get out of it, what's the benefits for both parties. You know, if I commit to X and you commit to Y, we get a Z result, and being very very open and clear about those commitments early on. I think it's also easy to feel as a supplier that all the commitments on you, but actually I think it, you know, those partnerships need to be two-way. There needs to be a joint, a joint partnership. I think the other thing we see is about engagement. So often we have you know, great conversations at exec level, you know, the myself and the equivalent in my partner is is all bought it. And then we sit down again three months later, six months later, and it hasn't quite happened. And I think often it's because so much focus has switched to exec engagement. And sometimes we can forget about the importance of the engagement with people, perhaps a bit lower down the business. So in sales and operations and marketing and support teams who, at the end of the day, play a pivotal role in the actual execution of, of, of said strategy. So, uh, yeah, I'd encourage our listeners to think about not just exec level, but also those people on the on the shop floor who ultimately make it happen. I talk quite a bit with companies around connecting up the strategy with execution, because very often companies and partners know where they're trying to get to, but sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect between that strategy piece and the, and the execution piece of what's actually happening on the ground. And I always come back to a fantastic expression a great mentor and friend of mine had, which was, you know, whenever he he was thinking about things, it was always you know talking to friends in low places and not suggesting people are low, but just are you really covering all of your bases? Are you really talking to everybody across the business? Because if you haven't got the execution joined up with the strategy, as you say, you you end up with a with a gap here and not meeting those expectations. I, I think we, what we see as well is that often those, those people down the organization, so an ops manager, for example, they're very influential. So actually the, 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 the exec will listen very carefully to their input. And I think is there 
pleased with the partnerships working well, they'll they'll clearly share that. I think if there's challenges, then you can find that at that exact level. You know, you, you're not getting a buying because actually you've you've kind of missed the fact that somebody low down is uh, is not happy with where we are. I think what you've described for me is a value exchange. So there needs to be a value exchange between the vendor and the partner, and and the vendor rather than just being seen as a supplier needs to be a vendor partner. So it needs to be a partnership. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but that value exchange needs to happen between the vendor and the partner, but equally within the partner in the sales teams, the, the, the sellers also need to see the value and the support teams and the big teams and other commercial teams and technical teams. So I see that value exchange being between the, the vendor and the partner, but also within the partner through the various operational roles. And I think that really speaks to both of the points you made earlier, Steve, in terms of uh, you know what makes a good partnership. Yeah, no, I quite agree, Matt. I think um, you know the, the other thing that we that we tend to see is that sometimes in that sales organisation that that buying isn't there. And actually, if you go back to the kind of original reason the partnership was established, you've got to be really clear as to why that is. And there can be occasions. I don't mind saying this really where. It just isn't the right fit for both parties. So it might be, take Zen's case, you know, we're a premium player in the market. We offer a great service, but it, it comes at a premium price. And if, if a partner is out there looking for perhaps more of a commodity, they just want a product at a certain price point, then that partnership's perhaps not not right for, for, for both parties. And I think there's nothing wrong with being prepared to admit that really and, and being prepared to walk away and say, actually, it's not for us. Um, on either side and uh you know whilst we're only doing that too often i think there's, there's no harm in being honest about what we're both after and whether it works for both parties and it doesn't be, be willing to to walk away i think having a robust uh, i guess position is is a strength i remember in sales a no bid was equally important to bid for an opportunity and 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 you you tend to have have an instinctive feeling when when it actually you're the salesperson at the front of an opportunity whether to bid or no bid and that's based on whether the fit is there and it's a bit like we've spoken before like like a, a good restaurant has the confidence to have not much on the menu because they know what their strengths are and they like to promote their strengths i, I see it as as very similar and actually if the fit is not right you're wasting everybody's time and obviously, to your point, Steve, you're not you're not doing it in all cases. But having the confidence of being robust to say this is a fit or this isn't a fit, I think it's it's very valuable. So that you're spending time on opportunities, on partnerships that will actually drive the right outcomes. Yeah, and I think to your point, Matt, about time wasted, I think in even the obviously the, the initial bid process where time and effort's being expended but if you take it a step further and, and we enter into an agreement that actually isn't in the best interest of both parties there's a whole period of engagement of induction of of, of getting up to speed that can be many months and you can, we can burn both organizations a lot of time and effort there's a, a huge amount of expense that could be um, invested there so i think it is so so important that you get it right up front and we're very clear about what, what we're both entering into and why. And uh, and I think in most cases that, 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 that's done well, but I think in some cases it can be a, a challenge. I think that point about time and focus is really critical, isn't it? Because it's that which partners or which vendors do you invest that time with and do you work closely with? But also when you look at the 
breadth of portfolio that many companies are dealing with. It's pretty complex stuff. There's a lot going on. You know, sales cycles can be quite long and, and complicated. And, and I think, you know, there is often a danger of trying to stretch res- finite resources too thin. Certainly something that I've seen with a lot of companies, particularly as they're trying to scale up. You can't be all things to all people. And so being really clear on where do we focus our efforts, where we can have best return, make the best impact, I think is critical. And that selection of partners sounds the where you're being quite robust in terms of what's a good fit, but also, you know, where do you sit in the portfolio? Because people need enough time in the day to be able to get their heads around the whole breadth of what they're selling to a sufficient degree as well, don't they? Yeah, that's quite right. And I think, um, you know, I used to talk in the past and I don't mind admitting a, a change of tact here, actually. So uh, a number of years ago, I always used to say to um, customers, partners, our, our own people, you know, we need to be a one-stop shop. We need to cater for everybody's requirements. And that way we'll have the most um, chance of being successful in being able to serve all the customers' needs. Increasingly, I, I, I look back on that advice and say, actually, I was wrong. Um, I think in, in the age we're in now, the reality is what we see is there's an ecosystem of typically about half a dozen suppliers that, that serve a, a customer's various IT needs. And, and I guess there's some debate about how many it actually is, but I think we see about half a dozen across connectivity, comms, you know, cloud um, applications, et cetera. And um, I think it's really important you're very clear about what is your strength, where do you, where is your expertise, and, and if I'm honest, not to get too distracted by the temptation to end up with a very, very broad product set where you're you're effectively the master of nothing. You kind of average everything. And, and that's a really quite, I think, a dangerous place to get yourself to these days. I think you need to be very, very clear about how do you add value? How do you stand out? What makes you different? So that you have both yourself and the customer and the partner understands that very, very clearly. I think previously, Steve, there was a tendency for partners wanting to resell everything and be that one-stop shop as well. I think that was almost like a, a pride thing, but I need to be in control of this customer. And I think in the world of the, you know, as the part the landscape is exploding into the ecosystem, and I mean, you're talking about six different partners in the ecosystem. I think um, some of the analysts talk, talk about seven layers of SaaS. When you make a SaaS purchase, there's seven different technologies in there through APIs. And as the market is obviously moving towards ecosystem and, and, and more cloud, that's going to be the case in most, in most projects and most opportunities. So I think that uh, if you look at Microsoft, 30% of their sales or their revenue is transacted through partners, but they reckon 96% of their business is partner assisted. So that difference between the 30% and 96% is really down to the ecosystem influencing and having different types of organizations influencing the ultimate sale for Microsoft, whether it be consultants, whether it be traditional resellers, whether it be integrators, you know, there's a big delta between that 30% and 96% that's actually being sold through the ecosystem. Yeah, that's a really useful stat. And I think um, the other thing that we see as well is, it's just so tempting to uh, go and look at the new and shiny. I, I call it, and forgive me for this, but I call it magpie syndrome, where you see something over there that's new and shiny and you think, ah, oh, brilliant, I can enter that market, I can offer that service, I can make some additional margin. But at, actually often it can be at the expense of your core business and, um, and you, know, you take your eye off that core business. And I think particularly right now, you know, the economy is quite challenging. Um, 
you know, there's, there's a lot going on. It's quite uncertain to say the least. Um, so I think now more than ever, it's very, very important. You're clear about what you're good at and, and, and you focus on that rather than the, the temptation to get distracted by something that appears new and shiny, but actually can, can distract from the core business. I think that's really useful. I want to come back a little bit and talk a bit more about the ecosystem and how you see the partner ecosystem changing. I think just before we do that, let's dive a little bit more into, uh, I guess, what we might call sales activation and that really activating your partners, because we're talking a lot more about let's get focused, let's be clear on the profile, make sure that you know we're well aligned, that we're not trying to get, we're not being distracted by the by the new and shiny. But you also talked, Steve, at the beginning about you've got all of that exec engagement, but it's if it's not happening on the ground, you're not going to see the results. So I'm interested in, Pat, Steve, if you wanted to talk a little bit about what, what you're doing. And then, Matt, I know this is an area that you're really focused on um, across a lot of partners and vendors here. So, Steve, what are, you, what are you doing to try and get those partners really activated and turning intention into, into results? Yeah, yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to just wind the clock back on this, I think, really. So a few years back, um, we were onboarding quite a lot of new partners every year, probably about 50 or so partners each year. And what we were finding was, that it, it was taking us quite a long time to get that partner from signed partner to actually placing business with us, you know, some cases many months. And um, teams were getting frustrated. We, we also found that, you know, we were having orders fail, lots more faults. We were having lots of queries coming to our operational teams and sales teams. It was quite putting quite a lot of load and, on, on the teams. And what we started to realize as we started to track it is we weren't doing enough up front to invest in that initial onboarding and induction of the partner. And I often liken this to um, a new employee. You know, you bring a new employee into business and some businesses might to choose to sit them down. There's a phone, there's a PC, off you go. Whereas what we find at Zen is that, you know, we're most successful where we invest upfront in uh, really educating and training that employee. So we kind of sat down and thought, actually, why is this any different with our partners? Why would we not invest the same amount of effort into making sure our partner really understand our products, our services, how to sell, how to deliver, how to support, how to manage in life. So we came up with a, what we call a momentum program, where we put the partner into a kind of incubation period for three months. And uh, we use that three months to make sure they understand the teams, they understand their processes, our systems, our ways of working, uh, how to order, how to diagnose, how to raise thoughts, et cetera. Uh, and we've seen a really big improvement in the the amount of queries coming to the teams, the speed at which we can get that partner to a place where they're regularly placing business with us. I think that, yeah, it can be a challenge. Some partners don't want to spend 90 days in that incubation period. They don't want to jump straight to day 60. And uh, I think it does require some patience and, and some reinforcement that actually this is an important process to really maximize the partnerships. Yeah, and really what you're saying, Steve, is, is you're trying to change behavior within the partner, not only in the leadership, but also in in the sellers as well and, and the support teams. And, you know, I've got a saying that three times is a is a habit. So you want to really try and drive that successful, repeatable behavior. And the adoption of, of vendor portals in partners is only about 17%. And 90% of that is deal reg rather than enablement. And lots and lots of vendors do lots and lots of enablement online. And from, from our experience, from traditional enablement programs, less than 10% of the sellers actually get activated. And there's a number of reasons for that. And I think one of the reasons is that enablement 
is fairly open-ended with little metrics. There's little visibility. There's little tracking, measuring, and monitoring between the vendor, the partner leadership, and the seller. So it tends to sort of like happen in a dark room if it happens at all. So where we try and help the partners and, and the vendors be successful is, is really, to Anna's question, is sales activation. And, and really, if you think of competency as skills, knowledge, plus behavior, you can improve your skills and learn new knowledge from your vendor, but it's putting it into practice that really is the right behavior to make them successful. And that whole driving successful, repeatable behavior to win business, that's, I believe, the, the, the magic source in true activation. Enablement is an open-ended activity, but what activation does is actually drive sales and drive real business. And you do that by having a golden thread of transparency, visibility between the vendor, the partner leadership teams and the sellers. And, and actually you don't just send sellers to a training course or show them an online video and expect them to be truly activated. As part of the leadership, you need to follow through and make sure that that enablement is used in the fabric of the day-to-day sales motions to win business. Because a lot of enablement is done in a dark room silo and there's no tracking, measuring, measuring and monitoring, we believe to really activate sellers, you need to drive that successful behavior and have that buy-in between the partner leadership and the sellers. And I could go on a, long, a, a lot longer, Anna, as you know, on this subject, but that's my short version. Well, we can dig into it a little bit more, but I think just to add perhaps a bit of neuroscience to it, that we're creating new habits here. And whilst a simple habit, like maybe putting your keys in a particular place when you walk in the house so you don't forget them or can't, you know, so you can find them when you go out, you might only need to do that a few times to start to form a reasonable, a reasonably well-embedded habit. But when we're talking about complex habits and complex repeatable behaviours, which is what we're talking about here across the whole partner network, actually those, those take months because you are building new neural pathways in the brain. And that that takes a long time to embed. It's like, you know, you're creating a new little footpath through the woods. Well, the next time you come to walk that footpath, you can't see where you were treading. So it takes a lot of walking that same footpath to turn it into a footpath that you can easily find. And, you know, what we really want to do is, uh, and I appreciate my analogy now is going to get very environmentally unfriendly, but you want to turn that footpath into a big motorway. <laughs> Um, that, you know, your brain is naturally going to just pick up and fast track through. And so that takes time. And Matt, to your point, it, it doesn't happen overnight by saying, watch this or or do something academic. You've got to be able to transfer it into that practice and do it time and time again. And generally, there has to be a what's in it for me. What's the benefit of me doing actually what's quite tiring from a brain perspective? Because our brains like to take the shortcuts and the known paths. So what's what's in it for me to make the effort? But also it does take leadership to reinforce it, to embed it. The more those things are embedded in processes and structures and systems, then the more that will help us keep on the correct path. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to, to, to Matt's point earlier about reporting, it's quite interesting actually because we, uh, as part of the momentum work, 
we did some reports and dashboarding. So we actually tracked the calls that were coming into the team and who was raising those calls within the partner business. So we could actually see if the training we were delivering was sticking and, and if there were particular individuals that were struggling a little bit more. Um, so we could actually sort of track that a bit more closely. The other thing we found as well was that, you know, in some of our partners, yes, they embraced it really easily. But in others, it was more difficult. You know, the sales team were like, oh, I don't be uh, out out of the business for a day doing this Zen training. So we had to adapt ourselves a bit. So, for example, we, um, you know, we went along to their sales team meet and then kind of got ourselves a little slot and sort of started from there and built some momentum. Or we just took the guys out for some lunch and, and again, started small just to get the buy-in to what we were trying to do. So I think it's... You know, really simple, obvious things, but I think things that, that really make a difference, you know, the training on its own isn't enough. You've also got to build the relationship with that with that sales team. Um, another example was we actually sat in the offices. So we just sat in there, in and amongst the people for a few days, um, just to be present, to be available, to answer questions, which was really quite a powerful way of um, uh, getting the buy-in from, from the teams. I think you pick up on a couple of important things around how people learn in that as well Steve which is that you know that little and often is much better generally at reinforcing it helps to build the knowledge we can only take in so much at a time anyway so actually just spending a short amount of time covering something but covering it well in a way that's going to resonate is often more effective than we're going to put everybody in a room for a couple of days but also just thinking about how people then pick up on some of those things and building those relationships because oftentimes people learn by doing, and salespeople in particular um, tend to learn by doing. It's quite an active, you know, we're learning on the job all the time. So, you know, being present and around and being able to answer questions in the moment when somebody can immediately a- apply the answer that they've got, again, helps to reinforce it because next time, hopefully, they'll remember that answer and do the same thing again when they're faced with a similar question or a similar situation. So that's sort of on the job in the moment um, is also really effective if you can find ways to to feed into that. Yeah, no, we found it as I say, and uh, we found it a very effective way of um, of, of supporting the partners. Uh, another one, again, on the same thread, was um, actually going out on visits together. So we've actually been out with our partners on a joint visit. In some cases, you know, being the the expert in the room, not necessarily Zen representative, but just the expert in the room to try and help the uh, partner. So I think you're quite right. It's it's little off often is in our case being more effective than a kind of traditional sitting down in a classroom. It works for some, but I think for others, they prefer that, that different, a bit more informal approach, I guess. Yeah, and, and people consume in a very different way nowadays to even five, ten years ago. People are very time poor. Um, they're, they're multitasking or trying to. And I think you need to make it easy, you need to make it accessible and, and easy to consume. And that whole breaking it down into bite-sized pieces is how how most of the sellers that engage with us want, want to learn. And we've, we've talked about learning by discovery. Now, learning by discovery is, is really taking the knowledge and skills you've learned and applying it in a real case study, a real application. And once sellers do that successfully, they'll repeat that behavior because they've seen it drives an outcome for them because it drives an outcome for, for their customer. And, and partner sellers are being bombarded with information from the vendors, you know, latest and greatest shiny technology. And, you know, their day-to-day time really should be focused on converting opportunities, winning opportunities, but also they have to do a lot of this sifting through all the information. 
So the onus is on is on the on the vendors to present it in a way that's easily consumable, but also also repeatable. That's a good point, Matt. As well on the small small size chunks. I remember when we uh, did the original Momentum Pro, and we, we created a learning hub um, where we made the materials available to download in in you know, PDFs, in webinars, etc. And one of those bits of feedback we got was that some of the sessions were kind of thirty minutes. And people were saying to us, look, we want smaller chunks. We want five to 10 minutes maximum kind of amounts of content because that's a kind of reasonable amount of time to spend sat in front of your PC listening to content. You know, when we're getting to 30, 45 minutes, the feedback was, you know, we just can't. It was a big barrier to adoption. Um, it's just the size of that content. So it's, I guess it's about being smart about how you thread that up. Absolutely. And, and then the challenge is how you thread everything together to make sure that you're actually getting to the end point. And there's actually value contained because if you've only got 10 minutes, there's not a lot of time necessarily to, to convey or, or convert somebody over. So it's how you thread all those bite-sized pieces together is really, really important. And in a way that, that salespeople will see the value, like I said earlier, easier to consume, but also you want them to be motivated to get to the end point. And the, the only way you're going to do that is if they see that value and it comes down to that value exchange, you know, partners need to be ready, willing and able to be enabled, but also that, you know, within partnership leadership, it's not abdication, it's delegation, it's following up. It's asking about the, the, the change in behavior in sales teams, Monday morning commit calls, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to really, really feed it into this is part of my working day, whether it's an email or a 10 minute bite size enable an activation piece, but you really have to try and weave it into the fabric of everyone's day. And we all know that everyone's day is, is very tight in terms of what they have to achieve. Yeah, you're quite right. And I think, I think also we found as well, it's, um, it's constantly evolving. So it's a kind of never, it's a never ending process of evolution. I think we, you know, you never kind of get it perfect. You've got to constantly kind of review it and adapt and change. I think the whole move to hybrid working has again caused a, a catalyst for us to really rethink the way we were doing it previously. You know, time on site at partners' offices was a great way of, of getting some knowledge across. Whereas these days it's, it's more of a hybrid that's, that's needed. So I think it's a, it's a constantly evolving picture. And the word, the word that was really in my mind, as you were both talking there is about being relevant to the to the individual as well as to the to the partner as a whole because i often think about these things in terms of must should and might so what must somebody know and be able to do and then what should they be able to and what might they be able to do in in certain situations or certain contexts and so you know that bite size needs to be relevant to the individual and they need to understand why is it why why is this relevant to me how's it going to help me to make my target or to be more efficient in how i make my target but I think you know, there's a couple of other topics for us to talk about in this uh, in this conversation that I, I want to dig into as well in the time we've got available. But I think there's a, some really good takeaways. I think just in in this part of the conversation for um, for vendors and for partners to really think about what are they focusing on, and I think you know what we're saying is it's not about taking shortcuts. It's about focusing on doing the right things right. And some of those things will take time, but if you're focusing on the right things, you are going to be more effective and more efficient. You, it's that go slow to go fast kind of mindset, isn't it? That I think there's a few really good tips in there that we can we can take away from there. So moving into just thinking a little bit more about that ecosystem, because you both raised, I think, a, a really interesting point around that the idea of the one-stop shop 
not necessarily being the most effective for vendor or for partner these days, trying to avoid the, the magpie syndrome and, and really drilling down and focusing on what are you really good at? Where can you really differentiate and, and have a big impact in, in the market? So let's talk a little bit more about what's changing in that ecosystem and how, how it's affecting how it's affecting the landscape. Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing at Zen? Yeah, so I think, um, as I said earlier, I think, I think you know, we, we typically see now businesses looking to work with a smaller number of partners, experts in their field. I think one thing that is interesting is, I've heard this term a lot recently, the competition, you know, this uh, notion of working together with the competitors, which interestingly isn't a new, isn't a new actual new terminology. You go back right, right back to the 90s, it was uh, being talked about then, so, um, but it's been uh, definitely pulled back out again. And I think um, there is increasingly, uh, you know, I think you look at it from the, the customer's perspective, this notion in the past where, you know, you end up in the blame game is often used in the past. You know, the, the, the comms provider blames the connectivity provider who blames the cloud provider. I, I just don't think that's um, tolerated any longer. I think customers have, have really got to a stage now where they're, they're just not interested in that, in that discussion. I think as competitors, we have to find ways of working together to give the customer solution. And I think... I think providers are recognising that now. You know, the voice providers are recognising that they've got to work with someone like ourselves to, to make that, that solution work. Similarly, the security guys are recognising they've got to work with the MSPs to make that harmoniously deliver the right solution for the customer. So I think it's a it's an area where we're seeing some change. And I think my, I guess my best example of it, um, which is a huge topic in its own right, Anna, is, is climate change. Um, we've done some good work recently where we've been working together with suppliers, competitors, to actually um, try and tackle what is obviously a global a global problem. And there's a real appetite to work together, to share best practice, to realise that actually we're all in this together. We, you know, we're never going to make a real meaningful change if we don't help each other. And it is a huge topic, but an interesting one. Um, are you seeing a, a shift then in that appetite to work together, Steve? Yeah, I'd definitely say so, aren't I? Yeah, if I go back even just a few years ago, I think... Um, Probably pre-COVID, actually, there was there was less willingness to do that. You know, we're all fighting over market share. We're all fighting over the customers. You know, we all want to grab as much as we can. I mean, in reality, it's a massive market. You know, um, we provide IT services into into millions of businesses out there. And in truth, there's plenty of space for everybody. Um, I, don't, I don't think this notion of having to compete in such a ferocious way is necessarily needed and not always in the interest of the customer either, which I think you've got to remember that point. It's... Uh, you know, we've got a business there that's um, trying to get the right solution for their needs. And uh, if we all work together, we can give that customer a great solution. I think if we fight it with each other, it's much more difficult. So I've definitely seen a step change there. And uh, as I say, climate change is a great example where more than ever, we've got to work in, in partnership. I think you've raised a good point there, Steve, is that with traditional vendor channels, all the partners are competing. But more the philosophy as the ecosystem is we're in it together and we can win together and we can work together. And from my part, coming from a software company, we've always worked with other parties using software API. So, so by definition of uh, getting the APIs to talk to each other, we, we, we actually are already working with what could be seen as, as competitors in the, in the, in the past because they particularly, they fill a particular technology in the stack and what the what the customer's buying is a is is an overall solution that's made up of multiple layers of, of technology to your point data and voice being the two elements in a lot of opportunities and i think also having a presence on the internet i read an article last week that said 
talked about dark social that said that 70% of awareness of your company happens in the dark that you're not aware of. You're only probably aware and are visible of, of 30% of the effect of social media on getting your story out there, getting noticed. So when it's an important project like sustainability, I think there's a lot of visibility of what you're doing out there on the, on the internet already. Yeah, it's interesting, um, Matt. I think another thing that we say to, to your point is, use customers are so much more informed these days. You know, we find customers arriving at, at, at the door with lots and lots of knowledge. There's lots of research. You know, that they're, they're well informed in some cases. So it, it reaches a stage where you know they recognise that they need multiple partners to deliver their solution, and they already know that before um, that they've made that initial inquiry. So they're what they're not looking for is for you to be critiquing the competition or, you know, doing anything like that. I think they're looking for you to, to, to hear how you can work together to, to deliver the, to deliver what they need. It's interesting how we're seeing that ecosystem evolving. And obviously, particularly in the current climate, and we've talked about this before, the increased potential in merger and acquisition activity. And that is another dimension, I think, in terms of this ecosystem that we're talking about. Um, so what are, you, what are you both seeing seeing in terms of M&A activity and, and how's that got you thinking? Yeah, no, the M&A activity certainly really picked up in, a, in the last year. I think in terms of the sector we're in, you know, I think we're heading towards the stop sell and, and the switch off of the copper network. And it, it's a massive change for traditional uh, resellers who've um, you know made a living from um, lines and calls and, uh, and copper-based services for many, many years. And, and many of them are, are up for the for the change, but in, but in truth, some aren't. And um, you know they've reached a, a phase where it now's the time to um, to perhaps cash in and uh, you know, take advantage of a business they've built up over many years. And I think what that's doing though is creating a dynamic where you know in, in Zen's case we can suddenly have a situation where we've got four or five partners who've been acquired by a bigger entity who uh, we have no relationship with. Um, uh, it, they can, they, you know, I think the analogy I've used previously that they arrive at the front door in an oil tanker, um, a very large one, um, and uh, you know we don't have any relationship at exact, exact level or further down the organisation. We don't understand the customer. We don't understand the customer base, what sectors they're in, what portfolio they've got, what expertise they've got. So it's a, it's a very big change, and I think it does require us to almost go back to the very beginning of the conversation we had about okay, well, what is the what's the strategy for the business? Is there, is there um, a partnership there? Is there, are we aligned in terms of our views? Um, actually, what we did, do we need to do from an activation perspective? What levels of knowledge does this partner have? You know, where are the gaps? How can we address those gaps? It requires a complete reset in a way. And I think in truth, in that scenario, you could either end up in a situation where, you know, you tremendously gain because you've um, got access to a much bigger customer base, a much bigger product set, you know, that, that there's a lot to be gained. But equally, there's a real threat there because if you can't quickly establish that alignment and engagement, then you'll very quickly be um, be removed from the equation. You know, you'll be, um, I guess, a casualty of the M&A process. So uh, I think it's a, you know, I think it's a really interesting topic, this, as to how this plays out over the coming years. As a both an opportunity and a, certainly a threat. Do you say, Steve, you have to act quickly in that scenario? Yeah, definitely, Matt. Yeah, very quickly. I think, and, and not be afraid. By the way, if you're not getting attraction to, um, you know, really kind of muscle your way in. Um, I know we've certainly uh, had to do that on some occasions where we've been approaching execs via LinkedIn and another methods just to make sure we get, we get some airtime. So uh, yeah, time is of the essence. 
And um, as I say, be, being really clear about where you fit, where you can value, what is their strategy direction. Uh, yeah, really important. Because from a sales activation perspective, which is where we're coming from, is it's almost like a mass induction. So, so the the taking on of a new salesperson partner, there's normally very little formal framework there ready. So when when the person turns up on their first day, there's not always, unless it's a larger company, a formal induction process. It's relatively informal, and and you know that that new seller might get asked, "Where's your list of accounts?" <laughs> Bring it over as well. But in the M and A scenario, it, it's it's that on mass, right? Because you might have a brand new sales team where your technology is not something they've been experienced before. They don't necessarily understand the value. So so we we see it from a sales activation perspective, like mass induction. You have to act, act quickly, and you have to be flexible. Uh, be, because what will happen is, is if one team's enabled and the other one isn't enabled or activated, then it goes down to the lowest common denominator. And to your point, you might get excluded as a vendor in their portfolio. You know, we, we've, we've done some cases where we've been working with a partner for 20 years and we almost feel like, a, you know, well, they've been very loyal to us. You know, we've got, we've got a, a long-standing relationship. I think in truth. Um, that doesn't mean anything once that acquisition activities took place. You know, at the end of the day, the, the, uh, that, that is a previous relationship. We're now into, entering a new relationship. And, uh, you know, you've got to start from scratch. And the fact that you've been working together for a long time, um, as I say, that's, a, that's a, a relationship that's been gone and it's time to, to, to start again. And I think it's, it's quite easy, I think, to get a bit complacent in those situations and think, uh, oh, yeah, of course they're going to use us. Of course the new entity will understand the value. I've certainly seen that complacency at times where um, I've had to kind of remind the guys that uh, you know, we really need to move at pace now and uh, get established in that new relationship. Yeah, and often the people that you've got the relationships with are not necessarily, particularly the senior ones, who are going to stay. You know, if they've been shareholders in the acquired business, this may be their exit strategy to to move on or retire or whatever. So it is a sort of fast-paced thing sometimes. But I suppose I was thinking, you know, using your oil tanker analogy, Steve, it's it's like the oil tanker appears to move very slowly, but the crew on board the oil tanker are probably moving pretty fast. And, and so you don't necessarily see all of that movement just looking at it from from the dock. Uh, and I think without wishing to drag out the analogy, uh, and I think uh, we need to jump in our speedboats and get over there pretty quickly um, to establish the uh, the lay of land. And you're quite right. I think we, we see scenarios where the acquired entity will take the time and understand the, the business really well and um, understand the expertise and the customer base. And I think that, that tends to work better. We, we see some scenarios where very, very quickly the, the director's moved out. Some of the key people leave, the cultural fit's not there. And, and, and in truth, the acquisition does, doesn't really go as well as they, they'd like it to. We, we, we can end up being providing insight and expertise because they just haven't taken the time to figure it out themselves. You know, we're, they're actually calling on our own knowledge of the, the partner to, to be able to help them understand effectively what they've bought and um, what assets they've got. So, um, yeah, it's, it's back to the, um, you know, patience, I think, would be the, the, the watchword, uh, whether, it, whether it's training or whether it's m Yeah, I think that diving in your speedboat to get there is is probably not a bad analogy for a lot of these things. You know, we that go taking time and being patient, but we need to be in the right place in order to be patient, don't we? We need to get to where we need to get to and, and then figure out the lie of the land 
think about, you know, what's going to take time. You know, we can't we can't make the shortcuts, but we can be more efficient and more effective at how we how we get there, whether that's around that activation, whether that's around uh, moving quickly to understand the new landscape of um, of an acquisition or a, a broader ecosystem. So I think there's lots to take away out of this uh, out of this conversation. By way of wrapping up, what tips or thoughts would you like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think we've ended up really where we started, which is people are the biggest variable in organizations, whether it's from an M&A or a driving successful behavior uh, perspective. But being able to be flexible, but having the patience to understand that, that to drive successful behavior, you have to have the right type of activation in place because people are the big variable. In an M&A perspective, you don't have a, a line saying people culture and have a value against it in the spreadsheet of due diligence. So very much, I think people is the big variable. Yeah, I think I met, I think we've called a lots of ground around, but I think, um, you know, investing in that partnership in the first place. So at an exact level, you know, let's make sure we've got alignment. You know, we're very clear on, on what the, what, what good looks like, what does success look like for this partnership? Let's not forget about the people below that exact level, actually, who are making it happen. Uh, you know, to Matt's point, um, that, that, that sales team, we, you know, you're not going to have a successful partnership without getting some some traction there and some momentum. And there's lots of businesses fighting for their attention. So, uh, you know, make sure you're, you're going about that in the right way. And I think finally, just the patience point, I think it's uh, it's all too easy, I think, just in business generally, to just rush into things. And um, and sometimes it's needed, you know, the MEA scenario where you need to move quick. But I think there's other times where it pays to be uh, a bit more patient, you know, a bit more, a bit more measured in your approach to get the to get the better result. And I guess the two are not mutually exclusive, are they? Being fast moving, but also measured in terms of of what you do, which I think particularly applies in that M and A activity, doesn't it? Steve, Matt, thank you both very much for for coming back on the uh, on the podcast. You're welcome. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you again to Steve and Matt. I come away from the conversation with a wealth of ideas and insights from their experiences and hope you do too. Steve's oil tanker at the front door analogy definitely resonated for me. And thinking how we move fast in these situations is key, as I expect we'll see further M&A activity ahead. For me, a big takeaway and something I'm often talking about with clients is focus. Being clear on what you're good at and what you can achieve with the resources that you have. I think this is going to be a North Star for many partnerships over the coming months. Really focus on where you can win and what you can achieve together and be crystal clear on what that means in terms of what you're not going to do as well. So that's it for this episode. Join me next time when we'll be exploring how to recruit the right salespeople, which in this war for talent is a hot and critical topic.